Who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. On today's episode, we have Joshua Hoffman, CEO and co-founder of the biotech company Zymergen. Previously, Joshua was a partner at Norcop Capital and a managing director of Rothschild. He began his career at McKinsey, where he focused on strategy and operations. Here's Joshua. I'm going to talk about some of the lessons I've learned, some things I think that I got accidentally right, some things that I think uh, I invested in building capability that turned out to be useful, frankly, some stuff I got wrong. And I'm hoping as I go through these, we'll be able to pause and have a conversation. So at any point, if you have a question, throw a hand up, we can have this be more of a discussion because, frankly, if I have to talk at the group for 45 minutes or so, it's going to be boring for me. And since this is really all about me, no, just kidding. Um, so I'm guessing, just out of curiosity, had anybody here heard of Zymergen before anybody? A few people, right? Uh, maybe because we hired a Mayfield fellow. Uh, that may be part of it. But um, uh, we're pretty quiet in the press. Uh, partly that's by dint of personality. Partly that's by dint of some of the work we do. But also, uh, we are really, in some sense, uh, seen today as a profoundly unsexy tech company. Um, it's hard to explain what we do. We're really deeply technical, like no joke. Uh, we work in industrial chemicals, right? How many people here think that industrial chemicals are a cool place to work? All right, we've got a few hands, okay. Um, how many people here, what do people think has delivered more human welfare? Uh, industrial chemicals or uh, silicon, the Silicon Age? How many people think Silicon Age? Hands up. How many people think industrial chemicals? Yeah, the industrial chemicals folks are right. Um, fertilizer, right? That's an oil and gas product. Uh, most modern pharmaceuticals come from uh, hydrocarbon. Uh, plastics. Uh, there's a, a university, a Northwestern University professor, a guy named Robert Gordon, who has argued that uh, chemicals and pharmaceuticals, he links the two together, are one of the five great innovations at the end of the 19th century uh, that basically have led to a huge increase in productivity and welfare, human welfare. Um, but it isn't something that folks think about as being particularly interesting or sexy by and large. Um, and we're going to come back to that. So I want to describe a little bit about what we do, just so you guys have a sense of it. I'm going to fess up. I didn't set out to be an entrepreneur. I'm not even sure I'm comfortable calling myself an entrepreneur. So I'll give you a little bit of what I did. I actually started my career even before McKinsey. I'll give some details of that. Um, and then I'm going to talk about some of the lessons I've learned. And I'm hoping, as I said, that as we go, folks will, will uh, ask, ask questions. So um, just so it's clear what we do. Uh, biology, microbes, everybody know what a microbe is? Single cell creature, right? Yeast, bacteria. They're these amazing, perfect, microscopic chemical factories. They do things uh, with respect to the chemistry inside it that's magic, that's way better way more flexible and powerful than anything we can do uh, with what's called synthetic chemistry. You take a barrel of oil or some natural gas and you heat it up, you crack it, you put it into basically molecular building blocks like Legos and we, we stack them. And Legos are pretty awesome, but if you think about all the stuff you can build with a Lego, it's actually pretty limited relative to all the things you can do if you have a, the complete palette of materials. And microbes are the complete palette of materials. There's so much more you can do 
uh, with the chemistry inside a cell. Uh, but, and people have known about the potential of these, these, these cellular factories for a long time. In the early 80s, something like 25% of Genentech was owned by uh, industrial companies, Lubrizol and Corning and Fluor, because they, they, they understood this potential. But the potential wasn't realized because it turned out that our understanding of the biology, the biology is way more complicated than was understood at the time, or frankly, than is even able to be understood. Uh, just to give you a simple, there are uh, 10 to the 81st atoms in the universe, which is a big number, right? But if you want to program a microbe, you have to, and, and to give you a different sense, AlphaGo, how many people here know AlphaGo, right? AlphaGo searched a game space that's like 10 to the 360th. So that's, that's big, right? That's a pretty impressive feat of, of software engineering. But if you want to program a cell, just a simple microbe, you have to uh, be somewhere in the range of four to the three millionth, right? Like, that's a huge, like, I, I don't know any other way except to just use the exponents. It's an enormous number, right? And so people haven't had any, uh, any way of understanding this. Um, and so what we've done, uh, and, and I'm, this is a, I'll come back to this when I talk about one of the lessons I learned or one of the things I think is important. What we've done is said, hey, if scientists can't understand that, if, the, if it's too complicated for a traditional approach of a hypothesis-tested right, feedback loop, what are the ways we can apply an atheoretic approach, a kind of aggressive machine learning approach that's looking for the patterns in the data to search it? Right? How do we think about, about doing that in a way that allows us to reliably program these microbes to make novel molecules to create molecular diversity. And so that's the company we've built. Uh, the technology works incredibly well for reasons that I'm happy to talk about later, but I don't think are the point of this, this talk. And we've been lucky uh, and maybe a bit successful in building uh, a business to work with large existing, to, to build a business. And there's a couple aspects to the business, and again, this will, this will come into some of the lessons, which is in the physical world, adoption Product adoption cycles are long. They take, they're measured in years, not in quarters, right? We don't grow in, in the way that a social network would grow. Uh, and so we set out to create a, a set of interesting and novel products, but also to work with large existing players, uh, frankly, kind of boring-ish companies, at least uh, as folks might imagine them, to help them with the set of problems that they had. And we did that uh, to ensure that we weren't just taking a flyer on some product way out in the future. So. That's kind of the business. Uh, we're 450 people. We've raised a bunch of money. Um, that's, that's kind of what's relevant. Um, I think what, what also is relevant is I, I didn't set out to be an entrepreneur. I didn't, in fact, I'm not actually comfortable calling myself an entrepreneur. I don't know, it doesn't sit well with me. And for sure, when I was in college, uh, the idea that this was a thing one planned to go do, it, it didn't, it wasn't that I, I would have disagreed with it. Like I, the question would never have occurred to me. Um, and I actually didn't start my career at McKinsey. I started my career after college. Uh, I went and I worked at the Carter Center in Atlanta, uh, where I'm from. And after that, I moved to Washington, D.C., where I completely and spectacularly failed to get a job. I tempted a lot. I played a ton of basketball. I, I dunked in a pickup game for the one and only time of my life. Um, I can't do that anymore. Um, it was a great day. Uh, it was a great day. Uh, and then I got a job. Uh, as an economist working for the Ugandan Ministry of Finance in East Africa, where I worked on financial sector adjustments. I worked in helping the, the Ministry of Finance develop interbank lending, overnight lending markets 
uh, and secondary markets and government debt, which is an important tool of monetary policy, um, but had nothing to do with what I'd done before. I went back to Yale for grad school, and then I was going to go be uh, an investment banker uh, focused on, this was in the mid-90s, I was going to be an investment banker focused on what's called structured finance, basically uh, debt finance into emerging markets. And I got a call from McKinsey, who was opening an office in Johannesburg and was looking for people that had spent time working in Africa. Uh, and so uh, that was kind of the path in. Um, and, and you can see, and, and so that's, that's one sort of thing. Then I, I work at McKinsey. McKinsey is, I mean, how many people here think of McKinsey as being an entrepreneurial place? Exactly. <laughs> um, that's, that's the right number of arms up. Um, and I thought it was so entrepreneurial and so amazing that I went to go work uh, my first job after leaving McKinsey, so I went to go work for a large British bank called Lloyd's that had like 100,000 people working for it. So that was even less entrepreneurial. Uh, and after that, I went to Rothschild and, and so on. Um, and so I clearly didn't set out to do this. So let's talk about uh, how I got there, why I got there. And part of what I want to talk about is kind of these lessons of an accidental entrepreneur. And I want to encourage folks to... Um, to not think that this is something if you want to do, you should do now. In fact, I'm going to go further. I'm going to be a little provocative, and I'm going to say that if you have a passion and an idea that is about uh, identifying a set of needs for consumers or customers that you have uh, deep intuition about today that's real, then great. This is a great time to do it. I wouldn't say don't start something young, but I would say don't be in a rush. There's a ton of data that suggests that being an entrepreneur later in life with some substantial experience is a huge advantage. There's a Kaufman, uh, a Kaufman Institute study that shows, let me see if I can get the numbers, 500 successful high-growth founders, the typical one's 40 years old with six to 10 years experience. And I think especially if you're interested in something that is more business to business or something that uh, I have passion for, which is touches the real economy, uh, I think the time spent doing other things and frankly wandering in the wilderness a little bit is pretty valuable. So um, let's, talk about, uh, let's talk about some of the lessons I learned. Um, first, uh, so I graduated from Berkeley. I declared, uh, I was in order, let's see if I can get this right, I was an architecture major, I was a math major, I was a history major, and I was a social sciences field major. I was a dilettante. Uh, and, and on the one hand, right, that was kind of dumb. Right? I wander around, I took stuff that I thought was interesting. There's not that much of a connection between uh, architecture and math, between math and history. I mean, these are all over the spectrum. Um, but, and, I think that that breadth of exposure is actually incredibly valuable in helping you think about problems from different ways. Now, I'm not saying that everybody here has to go change their majors. Uh, I'm not even suggesting that. So, but, but what I would say is, I think you want to look for opportunities in your life to think about things in, um, in, 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 in multidisciplinary ways, right? When you think about a, 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 an academic subject, as an example, there's a kind of discipline for it, right? There's a logic that goes with that discipline. If you're an economist, you start from by and large, a rational agent, you think about how you can set up a set of maximizing conditions. And that's a, that's a powerful way of thinking about the world, but it has a bunch of limitations. 
But if all you ever do is spend your time as an economist or a physicist or a historian or whatever, it's going to be very hard for you to understand the limitations of that way of thinking about the world. Those are all models. Those are all maps. And the map is not the territory, right? And so you want to, by, by looking at different disciplines, by thinking about the world in different ways, you can start to see where the, which, which your, your toolkit, your problem-solving toolkit expands. And as an entrepreneur, that is deeply, deeply critical because part of what you're doing is solving problems that don't have easy and obvious answers. Does that make sense to folks that resonate? Does that seem like the wackiest, craziest idea you've ever been told? This is one of the, yeah, there's a question? Oh, a thumbs up, okay. This is one of those pauses where folks had questions, but I'll keep going. Um, number two, especially at the age that a lot of folks are in the room, coming out of undergrad, coming out of grad school, uh, I'm gonna encourage everybody to go do stuff they're really bad at, right? By and large, the people in this room have gotten where they are by being really good at stuff. And that's great, but kind of uninteresting in some sense. Like, y'all are all studs, great. Go, go pick the things you're bad at and go do them. Play to your weaknesses, not to your strengths. Um, because if you actually wanna go be an entrepreneur, you can't, you kinda have to have breadth across the, the, the waterfront. So you need to have, you need to be only so bad at some stuff and you need to know which of your weaknesses you can get better at versus which are really things that you're not gonna go do. Um, so uh, I talked about uh, getting a, McKinsey reached out to me about working in their Joburg office. And I didn't take that job. I didn't go work in Joburg. I actually came and I worked for McKinsey in San Francisco. And the reason I wanted to come to San Francisco I mean, there's some personal reasons, but uh, there was a, 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 a higher order, which is I sort of felt like I knew what it was to work in a developing country. I knew what it was to find a way of being successful in a place where the rules were maybe was more entrepreneurial culture, let's say. I knew that San Francisco was a much tighter, more buttoned-down environment. In these days, you had to wear a suit every day to work, so it was definitely tighter and buttoned down. Um, and I wanted to make sure that I developed the expertise and the capability to operate in that environment. There are lots of other examples like that, but I, I would really encourage folks to um, think hard about what you're bad at, and then how do you put yourself in a situation where that's the thing you've got to go develop, right? It's, it's, a, it's sort of the extreme example of the growth mindset, right? So it's not just like expect to be challenged, it's actually put yourself in a situation where you're not gonna be good. Because, you know, if you wanted to be the best at something, you just stay doing the thing, and that that's, from my standpoint, that is, um, that's satisfying in the way that eating too much candy is satisfying. It's kind of enjoyable at first, but it's ultimately not that nutritional. Does that make sense? Uh, there we go, there's a question. So how do you adjust to that, to not doing well at things? So the question was, how do you adjust to that, to not doing well at things? Well, I think, I guess my, my Insta response is, what you're doing well is learning, right? You're not necessarily, it's about the first derivative, not about, right? It's about how quickly can you learn? And so where you are, especially, I think about lots of things in life in, in the, the sort of the old um, apprenticeship model. You're an apprentice, and then you're a journeyman, and then you're a master, right? And if you're an apprentice, you're gonna be not very good at stuff, and that's okay, right? There is a time to be a journeyman. There's a time to be a master. Uh, but especially early in your life, I think you want to, uh, invest more in the apprenticeship, right? There's no, 
right? People here are going to live to 80 or 90 or 100 or 110. There's a long life ahead. Uh, and the more you can learn, the, the, more, the richer the opportunity set is. So I think, I, think it's not the, I think it's more about reframing what it is to be good at something. Does that make sense? Question in the back. Uh, do you regret not working for McKinsey in Johannesburg there in San Francisco? Uh, do I regret working for, not working for McKinsey in Joburg versus San Francisco? No. I mean, I have some really good friends that work there that I would have liked to have spent more time working with. Um, but no, I don't. I, I, would you, I mean, San Francisco was much more challenging for me than Joburg would have been because I'd worked in Uganda. Um, it was a less conventional office. Uh, so no, I don't regret. I probably... Uh, if I'm honest, I probably, I struggled a lot when I first joined McKinsey. I came really close to getting fired kind of at the end of my first year. I was not good. Um, that wouldn't have happened probably in Joburg. I wouldn't have flailed in some of the ways that I did before. I don't regret that for a second, right? That forced me to, to my point, that forced me to get better at stuff that I wouldn't have been better at otherwise. I got, I had a couple of mentors, people that were, two years ahead of me who just beat the crud out of me, right? And uh, I don't think that that would have happened in the same way in Joburg. I would have been able to kind of skate by. So, no, I don't, I don't, I don't regret it. Yep. That actually leads to the question that's kind of in, jumping in my head. Like, what are the role of advisors into you as, in your experience as CEO relative to, like, the multidisciplinary learning that you do? Like, do you think that advisors are as valuable as having learned all of that? And how do you balance those two? Yeah, so the question is, um, is the role of advisors. Uh, and, and I want to be clear, I don't, can I hold that question? I'm going to talk about teams. I want to come back and talk about advisors. If I, if I finish the section about teams, that's number seven on my list. Uh, if I finish that and I'm, I haven't touched on it, kind of wave your hand and I'll come back to you. Um, so develop your weakness. Number three. I think you do, though, and this goes a little bit to the question that was asked. You want to piggyback back and forth. I think you, I think you don't always want to spend your life challenging, you know, doing doing what you're bad at, doing what's hard. That's exhausting, right? It's also the case that the likelihood that, especially early in your career, you're the world's best at something, even a thing you're good at, is also low. So you want to, I think you want to go back and forth between the kind of conventional and the unconventional, or the thing you're weak at and the thing you're bad at. That that interplay back and forth, I think helps sharpen one's understanding of where those lines are. Um, and, and I think it allows one, uh, again, lots of, lots of what I'm saying as I, as I listen to this are about trying to, trying to be in something and also outside it at the same time. So if you're in something, you kind of understand the world from the inside. But if you're outside it, you understand how it fits into the rest of the world. And so I, I would encourage people to do that. And so in fact, the McKinsey, Joburg, and then I left the country and I went, I moved to England and I worked for Litsa. So there was this kind of deliberate challenge to go back and forth between things I knew and things I didn't know. And I think that's an incredibly valuable and important skill because part of what you want to be doing if you're building, I think, a successful business and entrepreneurs, you're doing something that's probably new, right? And so you want to, you want to be able to leverage stuff you know, but also able to react and respond to stuff you don't know. Um, now... I think, and this is a very narrow, maybe Silicon Valley entrepreneurial point, you want to go back and forth between stuff you know and don't know, but I think it is also important to make sure you are, and this was a thing, frankly, that I didn't do very well. 
right? This was, an, this was the cost of being an accidental entrepreneur. Uh, I think you want to be very aware of the conventions that go around the formation and the running of a business in whatever sector you're in. Um, I didn't expect to start a business. I certainly didn't expect to start a business that involved raising venture capital money. I had spent a bunch of time in really large-scale corporate wholesale finance. I'd raised, been part of billions of dollars of transactions. I had no idea how to raise money in the Valley. I had no idea what was involved in that. And we really struggled uh, in the beginning because I took a set of lessons that I thought I understood, and I tried to apply them in a, in a culture in an, with a set of conventions, and I got it wrong. And so I think it is important to be aware of the conventions in which you're operating. Uh, they do matter, right? As much as somebody wants to try and reinvent, right, or kind of disrupt everything, I think you also have to be aware of the ways in which you want to operate in a set of, of existing uh, paths. Okay. Um, so that said, having said, you need to understand the point about, uh, about existing conventions. I think it's really important to learn how to reason from first principles. When I say that, do folks know what I mean when I talk about from first principles? I see some nods, some nods. So let me describe the thing that is, one of the things that's been most challenging at Zymergen is Hire, we work with lots of large-scale chemical and ag and pharmaceutical companies. We want to make sure that we, you know, as we grow, people that have some experience working with those companies. But the single biggest failure mode that we've seen for more experienced individuals is people who've come in and said, I knew how to do A and B and C before, and so I'm just going to do A and B and C. They were not able to understand the context and to adjust from first principles, oh, I did A because of one, right? Well, that is a bit abstract, but one's not exactly like that. So I can't do A. I have to adjust A accordingly. And again, the act, I think, of building something big and lasting as an entrepreneur involves, uh, it involves being able to find those places where you can replicate a set of patterns that have come versus where you have to invent from, from whole cloth. One of the things that somebody said in a different context, one of the things that, uh, how many people here know about the PayPal mafia? Okay, good. Lots of hands on up. So I'm lucky enough that one of those guys, Max Levchin, is an investor at Zymergen. And one of the things that somebody said about Max and a bunch of his, his co-founders, or the senior people, is they were unusual in that they were a team that had a distinctive ability to break down a problem and think about it from a first principle standpoint. They were doing little pattern spotting. Uh, and I think that that ability is incredibly powerful to be able to, to figure out what you want to do, how to solve problems you haven't seen before. I think there are a couple of tricks that I would encourage folks to have to help you learn from first principles. Um, one, uh, learn to think, and, and these are going to be kind of opposite ends. Again, a bit of a theme, right? Uh, learn to, to think about how to always go up a layer of abstraction, right? Uh, maybe this is kind of a software engineering mindset, but parameterizing something is an interesting way to get out of a box, right? You say, oh, if I just parameterize that, if I go up a level of abstraction, then I can kind of create a slider bar on something. I'm trying to think of a good example. And, and I can start to see the problem, and I can find a way out of it, right? But the flip side of that is also don't make sure you're really diving deep into the data, right? One thing, that mistake that I see lots of people making, I think is super important if you're trying to build a business, especially a business that hasn't existed before, is to really figure out what's going on as opposed to just what people tell you, right? I, I think it's super easy to lose faith in what you're doing and the way to keep, you know, 
it's, it's hard to build a business, right? And so if you know, if you have confidence in the reality that you're trying to, to hew to, then I think it's easy enough to keep faith. Whereas if you're constantly trying to chase the shiny object, right, oh, I should do this because TechCrunch said I should, like, you're going to drive yourself crazy. So I think it's important to learn to, to, to reason from first principles, both to solve problems and also to, to keep faith. And I'll give you an example of this, which is um, when I met my co-founders, uh, I had done some advisory work for Amaris, which is a biofuels company they were at, uh, and the company was struggling and I, I was confused because they had built a set of workflows to automate life science engineering. It was amazing. I thought it was like science fiction, except it was right there. It was like science fact. It was incredible. And I didn't understand very much about life sciences at all at that point. And I, um, I didn't quite understand why they weren't building a business around this. And so as I got to know these guys, they left Amherst because the stock went from 30 to 2, and people in the Valley tend not to stick around for companies. High-talent people tend to leave when that's what happens. And, um, and as I got to understand the problem, I, I began to understand that you could abstract the problem of biology, right? You could take a genome... And instead of having to think about it in a mechanistic way, what, what is it, how does it work? You could think about it in a, this, this, is a, this is an example because of the time I spent doing math. You could think about it, you could partition it, right? Almost like a hyperspace. I'm seeing somebody who appreciates that, right? And once you start to think about the genome as partitioning the genome, that opens up an entire landscape of search approaches that are pretty interesting and that allow you to go, well, what if we could do X and Y and Z? What's also interesting is so does that make sense to folks? That's super abstract, and I'm sorry if, that, if I lost folks. Okay, great. Um, but what also that allowed us to do is, you know, we talk about, and we do, machine learning with biology. But at the current moment in time in the Valley, machine learning is kind of synonymous with deep learning, right? And it's a super powerful technique, but it is not the be-all and end-all of machine learning. There are lots of other techniques, and deep learning has, again, for reasons I'm not going to go into here, it has a bunch of requirements in the kind and the volume of data you need to basically tune up a back problem. And they don't make, doesn't make sense for us. And so because we understood the theory, because we had this cross-disciplinary understanding, because we understood the details, we're, we've been able to say, no, the kinds of machine learning that we're going to invest in are other force. We're going to invest in reinforcement learning or certain kinds of Bayesian techniques. And that allows us to have confidence that what we're doing is right, even though we didn't, I mean, at this point, we've got enough evidence that we're doing is right, so we feel great about it, but we didn't know. We took a real leap into the unknown, but we could only take the leap into the unknown because we kind of reasoned from first principles. Does that make sense? Um, now, reasoning from first principles is great, and thinking theoretically is great, and that, frankly, is uh, one of the things I think we do pretty well at Zymergen. Um, but this is a place that we've been bad. I'd say as you're building a business, uh, as you want to build a business, don't be naive about the power of storytelling. I was, I was and am naive about the power of storytelling. Uh, I tend to think, as you can probably tell from some of the examples I've used, I tend to think in a very abstract kind of way. Um, that's a powerful tool for solving a whole bunch of problems. But part of building a business is convincing people to do things. Right? You need them to come work for you when there's no reason they should. You need them to give you money when all you have is a PowerPoint deck. You need them to 
sign a contract with you when it's just kind of hopes and dreams. And, and the way that people do that is as much emotional as intellectual. And storytelling helps with that emotion. And we were historically, and I think still, struggle with that, the same set of skills that allow us to design and be thoughtful about solving this complicated technical problem means that we underinvest in the emotional journey. And one thing, to give you an example, one thing that we struggle with is as new people join the company, we're, we've grown quickly. We're 450 people now, five years in. So that's a, that's a hefty clip. Um, we haven't created the stories, the lore, that allow new people to feel emotionally connected to the journey that we went on early. And that's meant that we've got a set of people that love the idea of what we do. We've, we did a recently an employee survey, and uh, it showed that everybody thinks amazing stuff's happening at Zymergen, but they don't quite think it's happening to them, right? Because the, the vision is great, but we haven't told the story about why this is interesting, how to make themselves the, the, the protagonist of their own adventure, right? It is also the case, needless to say, that this matters a lot in sales and in fundraising. And those things are super important. So don't, don't neglect the power of storytelling. It's a very emotional protagonist center. Think about who is the protagonist of these stories. It's incredibly important. Okay. Um, I might be done early. So you guys, you're, yes, there's a question. Thank you, because I'm, I'm going to run out of material. Um, so, given how much success uh, Zymergen has had in terms of raising funding, um, but also like the struggle to, in terms of knowing how best to tell a story, what do you think? Uh, how do you think that factored into like um, like VC aspects, and what do you think was most appealing about Zymergen? Um, what do I think is most appealing about what? Yeah. So if like the, so if storytelling was kind of. Um, wasn't like, if, if it wasn't like storytelling that uh, got investors really excited, what do you think it was that got investors really excited? Well, um, so I think we've, look, we've had some success fundraising, right? I don't want to, um, but I also believe pretty strongly that if we were, that our, our challenges in fundraising have been, it, for a company that told a better version of the story that had our technical success and our commercial success early, it would and should have been much easier and done at higher valuations, to be blunt. Um, now, some of that is because, and these things are related, some of that is because we told the story, I, I, I didn't know the conventions and the way to tell the story in a way that people would appreciate. I didn't understand what my audience knew and didn't know. I mean, our business is super complicated. We put together uh, a pretty advanced molecular biology uh, we, with actual real live machine learning where we tend not to fluff it up with you know, magic AI crap, with actual engagement with uh, large Fortune 100 companies that the Valley doesn't know, right? The Valley knows consumer tech, and it knows how to sell to CIOs, and it knows how to fund early stage drug discovery companies. That's, to first approximation, that's kind of all the Valley knows at this point. The semiconductor era is kind of in the past. And we didn't have any of those things. And so I didn't know how to, the challenge that we struggled with was how to wrap that, uh, 
how to wrap that in a way that allowed somebody to understand the story, to have the pattern that would have allowed them to easily and quickly cut a check. Now, we got lucky, uh, or maybe we were good. We had, um, uh, there are enough people around here who were interested in the technology uh, and who appreciated what we were talking about that they were prepared to do some early funding. And then we had a huge amount, because we were pretty good at the business, we had a, enough early commercial traction to overcome that. But I would say that you know, two or three years in, I had a board meeting and some board member said, oh, now I understood what you were talking about. Right, a board member. Um, so I, I think it's, I think it's it just, it's been much harder than it needed to be. Did that answer the question? Yep. Do you think VCs are actually swayed by these stories, or can they see through it and see your business without them? So DFJ is a sponsor of this and an investor in ours, in us. Um, I think they have, a VC has a really, really hard job. Uh, I'm ducking the answer. I think mostly they, they are swayed by the stories, to be blunt. Right, um, I, I think that there are exceptions, right? And I'll tell you, the proudest, the, the, the investor that I am proudest of, I think still to this day is actually a Stanford faculty member, a guy named Steve Quake, who runs uh, bioengineering. Um, and Steve did diligence on us for an investor, an early investor, and he came out of the diligence and he asked to put a small amount of his own money in. And I was so chuffed about that because he's so technically good. Right, he's amazing. Um, but I, uh, I apologize, Steve, if you didn't want the world to know you're a small investor in Zymergen. Um, we, but I think by and large, right, if you think about what a VC has to do, they have to have somebody come in, they have to read a document, maybe they know about it, they have to contextualize it, they have to evaluate it, it's largely on the come and they have to fit it into an investment thesis. The likelihood that they can, can figure out what's real versus not in that pitch, it's just, it's super tough. So yeah, they rely on stories. And that's okay, most people rely on stories. I'm seeing what? Hi, insert something since you asked for us to be engaged, I would answer in a little bit differently. I don't think as an investor, I don't think you would, and, and a determined to pitch both sides, I don't think that you will uh, fool a savvy technical investor, but what you will do is convince them to buy into the business and the person. And those are equal uh, things that uh, entrepreneurs, uh, investors are buying into. They have a lot of technical diligence, and you won't just you know, uh, fool them with a story. But where it matters is if you can't get someone to tell the story, that they're going to project that into how the entrepreneur executes as an individual leader. I think the other thing is, I think there's a wide variety of investors, right? There's a ton of variation in early stage investors. There are some VCs who are... So some VCs are really technical themselves. Some aren't that technical, but have done things like put people like Steve Quake, you know, help get them. And some are not so technical, right? And that's, a, that's an okay investment thesis, but they invest along different theses. Um, so uh, where was I? Um, seven. And this is maybe the one I feel one of the most passionately about. Um, value teams over individuals. Like, I'm a religious believer in the power of teams. Um, you know, at Zymergen, we 
integrate machine learning and lab-scale automation and biology and complicated contract structures that look not unlike joint ventures, and we take risk, we price risk as if we were an investment bank, and there is just no way that anybody can hold the entire business in their head, much less be even half good at it, right? Teams do magic, magic things. Further, teams with real diversity, and by this I mean diversity of thought, uh, gender and race and sexuality are great proxies for diversity of thought, uh, and they are worth looking for for those reasons, but you want to look for diversity of thought. You want to look for people who think differently than you do in whatever way. And those people will drive you up the wall. Our CTO, he's an amazing, amazing guy. He drives me up the wall sometimes. He's a great guy. He's a really good friend of mine. He drives me up the wall, right? He drives me up the wall because he has an ability to structure and plan and he can put things into a, an architecture and a Gantt chart that I would never have imagined could be done. It's an incredibly powerful, it's a superpower. It's a great thing if you're a guy who's gonna write a big complicated code base. But he has no ability to be improvisational, right? Like he, the same borderline OCD stuff that makes him so good as a CTO makes him tough in some other cases. And guess what, that's okay, right? What, what has to happen is the respect we have for each other, the ability to stop and listen and engage with each other. Now to come back to something else I said, that is fostered by our ability to go up or down levels of abstraction, right? Sometimes if you're, if you're not communicating with somebody, it's just oftentimes, it's just a language problem, right? And so you have to recognize that. Um, I mean, I, I've got a bunch of examples like this, right? We built... Uh, and uh, this is a great example of where diversity comes in. We, um, one of the things that we want to be able to do at Zymergen is we want to be able to take uh, a chemistry, either a particular molecule or a class of chemicals, and we want to be able to identify the pathway, the genes that allow you to make that inside a microbe. Um, and we, for a bunch of complicated reasons, uh, were looking to partner with a small company and they had taken two years to build it, and it was pretty good, and we wanted to work it, and they were a total pain to deal with. Like, they were just, for perfectly understandable reasons, we, we just couldn't come to a commercial arrangement. We were trying to figure out what to do, and we finally said, we gotta go, like, wow, we gotta go do something else. This is just, we're just not gonna come to terms with these guys. And we said, well, what, can we include something together that at least does what we need? Now, we, we needed a tool that was a subset of what they were doing, so I thought, well, Maybe it'll turn out to be, we'll, 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 we'll do it. Now, they had a team of, I don't know, four or five folks who'd built the tool. They'd spent 18 months, two years, something like that, building it. But they were all from the same academic lab, right? They were all kind of, the, they thought about it the same way. We put two people on it, an amazing uh, uh, bioinformatician and software engineer who she had just come out of, I think, University of Wisconsin. And, uh, uh, but she was really a, a software engineer. And, uh, and, uh, a metabolic engineer, a scientist who had worked at SRI. And in like four months, they built something that was twice as good as the product that these guys had built. And it was really about bringing those complementary disciplines to bear in a team environment that allowed them to do stuff. It was amazing. It's just a, it's a trivial example, but it's just teams do stuff that people cannot individually do. So I think it's really important to think about how do you be a good member of a team? How do you join teams? How do you cultivate in yourself 
not just the tolerance for diversity, but the desire for diversity. Because real diversity will make you itchy, right? It'll make you uncomfortable. Because um, you'll be challenged in ways that you don't expect. But guess what? Like, that's a great feeling. I mean, it's like that feeling where your legs are sore after you've gone for a long run, right? It's kind of a pleasant, unpleasant feeling. I think you want to cultivate that. And I think you want to put yourself in a situation, as many situations as possible, where you can learn from that diversity and enjoy it. Um, we're getting to the end, so um, I'd say lastly, and, and I alluded to some of this earlier, don't be distracted by shiny objects, right? Um, especially in the current moment, in the current geography, it's super easy to read, you know, as I said, TechCrunch or Valleywag as was, and go, wow, I should be making a, a ride-sharing app for pogo sticks and dog walkers. Right? Like, um, and it's easy in, in different contexts. I think Max Weber, Max Weber talked about politics as the long, slow grinding of boards. Right? Building a business is the long, slow grinding of boards. Um, and, <clears throat> excuse me, and I think if you are easily distracted uh, by the thing that's popular, the thing that's cool, you're not gonna, gonna stay focused, number one. Number two, we, um, we started Zymergen. There was a, a wave of investment in synthetic biology uh, at the kind of 2008, 9, 10. Those investments kind of all went to crap starting in about 2012. We started Zymergen in 2013 when everybody thought it was a terrible idea, right? Whoa, this is awful. We had real conviction in what we were doing and in the large scale impact of it. We weren't distracted by saying, oh, we're going to go do this shiny object thing. I think that's been proven out. I think there's now another wave, and I worry a little bit about a bunch of dross being funded. But it's not just us. I mean, when Google was funded, people said, ah, it can't be another search engine. AltaVista solved it all, right? I mean, <laughs> uh, and so it's pretty important to find the things that you have real conviction and passion, which goes back to my point about first principles, and make sure that you can stay focused and not distracted on that. I mean, another analogy there is, um, anybody here ever like a, uh, Anybody, any, any long-distance endurance athletes, even recreational, cyclists or marathon runners or crew, anybody like that? So some, like, partly, um, it's just, though, doing well in those things is kind of just about teaching yourself to endure pain, right? I mean, I have a, I have a friend who was, um, a guy who works at Zymergen, actually, who was a kind of on the cusp of being an Olympic swimmer. Uh, I think he went to the trials and didn't make the team. And I said, he said, I said, Eric, how'd you, you know, must have been amazing. So he's like, Actually, I just could bear more pain than other people could. And so the ability to have conviction in what you're doing and then, frankly, the ability to kind of bear the, the gruel of the workout, right, is a super valuable, if not tremendously inspiring thing for an entrepreneur. So those are my kind of, I think I got seven lessons. Yes. Oh, I talked about the, I missed the advisors. Sorry. Can get back to that. Yeah. So building something in analog world, you can take the time to bring that together. Um, frequently at the business school, we talk about when you're building in software space, the lean startup or the lean methodology and pivoting is more important. So how do you juxtapose those two or do you disregard that methodology? Yeah, so the question was, um, uh, and, and if I've, I'm going to try and restate it, and if I, if I, you'll throw some stuff at me if I get it wrong. 
Um, the question was, in an analog world, uh, that's great, but in a digital world where things are happening super quickly, how do you think about a kind of the the ability to be flexible, the ability not to just kind of keep throwing good time after bad? Is that is that a fair way of? So um, one, uh, I, I think. So I, first, I, I don't know that much about building a pure software business, right? So. I, I'm not going to pretend to to talk about that. I would say that I believe pretty strongly, and maybe this is something else I should have, you want to talk to your customers, right? You want to make sure you're creating something that's going to deliver value for your customers. And if you're delivering value for your customers, then you should probably keep doing what you're doing. And if you're not finding a way to deliver value for your customers, then you should probably pivot or maybe stop. But that's not quite the same as enduring. I'm not saying beat your head against a wall when I say don't be distracted by shiny objects. I mean, find something you have conviction in, continue to test your conviction against that, and stay focused then without being, without thinking, oh, you know, so-and-so raised a gajillion, uh, you know, a gajillion dollars from SoftBank, right, go do that. So I, I, think, I think that would be my, my answer. I don't think it's, yeah, it, it's, it's more about believing in what you're doing and keep finding ways to reaffirm that belief. That makes sense. My advisor, he asked a question earlier about how do I think about advisors, and I was going to touch it on in the team point, which is I don't think you should ever think of yourself. Uh, you always want to cultivate a team, multiple teams of people who can help you. I have advisors and friends that I call all the time, some of whom I worked for, some of whom worked for me, some of whom know nothing whatsoever about my business, but I'll call all the time. And I think... Um, I don't think you should ever, I think the more you can externalize your challenges and seek advice and counsel, the better. So I, I think for me, it's more about uh, more advisors that you can engage with more, more genuinely. But I also think it's about, honestly, finding as many opportunities to shut up and listen to what other people have to say as you can, right? What's the old saying? You know, you don't learn with your mouth open. Can't hear with your mouth open. Um, so... I think uh, I'm at the end-ish. I, I guess, you know, part of what I'm saying is, you know, seek out the set of experiences, some of which are probably accidental. Don't be in a rush, right? You know, Forbes does this 30 under 30 thing. My personal view, that should not be a goal. And you shouldn't look at that and be, like, depressed that you're not on it. If you're on it, great. I have some friends that have been on it. So, I mean, it's great. I'm not saying it's a thing to be spurned, but it's not a goal. Um, we, we were starting Zymergen, and I'll leave you this last thought. And um, one of my co-founders was somebody saying, oh, how do you do it? The effort, he said, it's, it's a marathon. And I looked at him and said, it's not a marathon, Zach. Marathons have endings. Thank you guys very much. The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production supported by the venture capital firm DFJ. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at eCorner.stanford.edu.